This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momentum. Welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momentum, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative as always. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to another edition of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to feature Tim Williams, the co-founder and CEO of NanoThings, a company rethinking cold chain tracking. NanoThings is one of our Momenta Ventures portfolio companies. Tim is the visionary behind NanoThings, and prior to NanoThings, he was the first employee and vice president of business development for a startup named Acquisition Labs, which exited less than two years after inception. Before Acquisition Labs, Tim was the director of business development at Rakuten Loyalty, where he developed their largest and most profitable business line to date. Tim was also the president of a private consulting company, which delivered over 20 million in revenue for his clients in under four years. Tim received his BA from Skidmore College. So Tim, welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much, Ken, excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you too. It's uh, probably long overdue given that uh, it's been over a year since we first invested in you guys and uh, always loved what you were doing. Uh, for our listeners' uh, sake, um, the we had a webinar actually just yesterday. So as we're recording this, it's only a day after our supply chain webinar, Digital Impact, and uh, and some really good discussions coming out of that. So well worthwhile if you didn't get a chance to see that to go back and listen to that because Tim was one of our three featured portfolio companies in that as well. So let's uh, start with your professional journey, Tim. Tell us a bit about your background and how it has informed your views of digital industry. Sure. So let's go way back in time to 2007 when I graduated from Skidmore College with a degree in business. And my grand plan at that time was to go into the finance world and conquer finance. Little did I know that at the time that was probably the worst decision of my life. Um, so I started working for a little corporate bond shop just in time to see the entire finance world collapse. Um, if you re- I'm sure everyone recalls the, uh, the Great Recession that took place in, in the 2008 timeframe. Um, and that really took the wind out of my sails and had me pondering life there for a little while. And after weathering the storm for a few years and really not seeing much light at the end of the tunnel, I decided that finance wasn't for me. So I jumped ship and figured that I would take a stab at an industry that was showing serious promise um, and growth despite the recession, and that was digital media. Um, And that was probably the best decision of my life. Uh, And I've had the privilege of working with some of the greatest media companies of all time, and it's really shaped the way I think about digital industry, uh, which is still in in its infancy. Um, And the way I think about the emerging world of digital industry is really sort of why change a recipe if it's already nearly perfect, and that's in reference to the, you know, the way that that the digital media industry has has grown. And so, really, all I'm trying to do is use the same approach to digital industry that made the media industry so successful. And that approach is it's all about data. You know, the media industry was really the first big data industry, in my opinion, um, and they figured it out long before anyone else. And the value of 
tracking user activity around the internet is pretty similar to tracking physical goods around the supply chain and the value of collecting as much data on people as possible um, to make informed decision, decisions around what ads to target them is really no different than collecting uh, as much data that we can on you know physical touch points in the supply chain to determine which of them is performing the best and which needs improvement. It's all really the same concepts, just in a different industry. Um, and obviously that's why I think NanoThings will eventually emerge as an industry leader here. Well, and uh, and we certainly hope hope it does. So it seems you have a pretty well-rounded experience base, consulting, finance, uh, sales, all prior to uh, to nano things. And and you mentioned already some of the key insights that you know that you applied into the supply chain space. Let's talk briefly about your your prior startup experience at Acquisition Labs. What led to your success in exiting there so quickly? Yeah. So first of all, I was. Pretty lucky to be working with some really smart guys, so I must give credit where credit is due. Um, Acquisition Labs is a pretty interesting concept for a startup. We actually started as this sort of hybrid between a digital agency and an advertising platform. Um, so basically, you know, I was going out, running around, uh, trying to convince the, the you know the world's largest advertisers to run bake-offs with this little company called Acquisition Labs that they'd never heard of before. Uh, in, you know, against their other existing ad platform, um, you know, the, these platforms that are much, were, were at the time much, much larger than, than Acquisition Labs. Um, and, you know, at, the, at that time, you know, the, the, the little secret that I've probably never told anyone before is, is that, you know, our platform at that time was far inferior to any of the other platforms out there. We were newer, smaller, the tech was a little buggy, it wasn't really super well developed, but what we had over all the other big guys was better customer service, better support, better people that actually you know gave a darn about uh, the customers they were working with. Um, and that really made a huge difference. So we were able to win a lot of business just by actually listening to our customers and what they needed and working with them towards their goals um, and building these strong relationships with huge, huge customers, even though our tech was inferior, allowed us to play catch up. Uh, with our tech, and eventually our tech became as good, if not better, than the other guys out there. Um, and we had all these huge, loyal, uh, and fast-growing customers uh, that were spending a ton with us, um, which we were able to, you know, intertwine into a very nice story um, that, you know, our tech was always the best, <laughs> uh, and that's why we have all these great customers. And 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 of course, you know, that was we were able to lead that uh, to a nice exit. You know, uh, I do remember when I believe it was uh, Neil Furukawa over to Akua first introduced us to you guys, and then of course we heard about you separately a couple times. And then uh, one of our principals in the ventures fund said, because we always look at the background of individuals, that's the first thing we'll look at is you know do they have that deep industry DNA? And I says, hey Ben, you know, so so tell me about the team. And he says. They have a digital media background, <laughs> and and I'm really glad you already drew that that conclusion that of digital media to in essence digital industry, and then that common the red thread as we like to say is really in the uh, in the data itself. So I think it was uh, I think it was kind of uh, interesting in terms of the jump that you made. Let's uh, let's kind of jump right into uh, into Nano things. So so tell us a bit about the problem you're trying to solve, and what inspired you to co-found the company with uh, David Gruber. 
Sure. So in one word, traceability. I mean, that's what this whole industry is all about. That's what we, you know, you and I were discussing yesterday in the webinar and um, our, you know, our play on this or our, our, our vision is to provide contactless cold chain traceability, cold chain meaning temperature controlled product, whatever that may be. And so the, you know, the real key is is temperature monitoring and uh, delivery monitoring. So that includes, you know, physical whereabouts. Um, and so uh, obviously there's this huge, you know, we talked about this a lot yesterday, this huge waste problem in the supply chain and cold chain. In the cold chain alone, forget about the supply chain, just the cold chain alone, there's over a trillion dollars of product waste. And that's all due to a lack of traceability. And that lack of traceability leads to a lack of accountability by any individual party in the supply chain. And, you know, it has this trickle down effect where it just continues to basically snowball on itself um, and make the problem worse and worse, especially in an industry that is growing um, so much every year just due to the simple fact that the population continues to grow so much every year and people need more food, people need more drugs, et cetera, right? Um, and so there's this huge, huge uh, waste problem that we're trying to solve and there aren't you know, the existing technologies um, especially when when in referencing uh, you know temperature monitoring technologies you know physical you know sensor technologies um, they're really really inferior I mean they can't get the job done um, they have proven to be unscalable they've proven to be inconsistent they're all too costly and that leads to poor adoption, inconsistent adoption, um, and you know, really inability to capture data easily and share that data in the way that it needs to be shared throughout the cold chain uh, to create some of these traceability efficiencies. I'll, uh, I'll pause there if you have any, any comments or, or questions there, Ken, otherwise I can uh, continue rambling on. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually this was quite good. If you don't mind, maybe let me, Go in a little deeper on the technology use because I think that may help the listening audience to put that into uh, to context. So, uh, what attracted us originally around this investment was our own early experience in passive RFID. And so, many of the audience may remember the Auto ID initiative and MIT Media Lab work. I, I like to say around the turn of the century, uh, it it really was the much heralded work between uh, Walmart, Gillette, and a number of other consumer packaged goods companies this idea of putting kind of disposable uh, tags or electronic product codes, EPCs as they call them, uh, onto pretty much all uh, packages, pallets, et cetera. And in essence, what we saw and what you guys were doing, kind of the disposable or these one-way tags was the equivalent of it without a lot of the uh, infrastructure that needed to support it. So I guess, let me ask, how did how do you see your solution differing from a lot of that early pioneering work that was done in both uh, passive and active RFID? Yeah, so uh, I love RFID as as a technology. I think it has a some fantastic applications. I think it's a really cool technology and will continue to find more applications in the world. But no offense to RFID, but it's really it's not it's never going to really become a dominant player in the industrial track and trace world and the the major problem with rfid which it will never um solve is its read range passive rfid tag and this is generally when we when anyone refers to rfid they're talking about passive rfid um can only transmit a few feet 
And so that means that readers need to be installed within a few feet of any tag that you want to actually collect the data off of. And so as you can imagine, that's an enormous amount of infrastructure. That's an enormous amount of labor and of course cost just to just to collect a little data off of a tag. So it's basically a non-starter for a lot of the industry. And RFID has been around for 25 years. I mean, it still doesn't have very much of a foothold in in you know in in this industry. And I think that's the reason why. Um, but but I'll give credit again. I'll give credit where credit is due. In in building our nanotag sensor, we copied a lot of the DNA and principles behind RFID that have made it uh, so so famous in in many other applications. Um, and so you'll, if you've ever seen a nanotag, uh, you'll notice it's really, really small. In fact, it looks very similar to an RFID tag. In fact, uh, we get confused for being an RFID tag all the time, which is actually really annoying. The, the, but that's really the only similarity um, that we have to, to RFID and everything else is basically different uh, other than size and cost. And so our real focus uh, at NanoThings in developing a better sensor technology was range. We had to have significantly better range than a few feet. Um, so, so we actually, uh, when we really took kind of like an, an, uh, an open mind to our approach to developing this solution. We knew what the problem was. We knew the, the, the solution, you know, the problem we were trying to solve, uh, but we didn't know exactly which uh, type of wireless technology would be the best uh, to solve this problem. And so we looked at RFID, NFC, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, all the different flavors of cellular, et cetera, and eventually, you know, whittled it all down to um, LP WAN as the only real viable solution here that could allow for a tag to be the size and cost of an RFID tag, but, but provide cellular-like range. And so our devices, our nano tags, live on a flavor of wireless called LoRaWAN. And LoRaWAN does a few incredible things for um, the wireless world for the industrial IoT world that really no other um, technology, wireless technology can do. And one is support ultra long range, two is support ultra low power, and three is in theory LoRaWAN is completely free from a from a connectivity standpoint. In essence, um, you uh, you and your clients many times roll out your own networks or use the publicly available networks. And the beauty of LoRaWAN as well is you get that optionality, right? If you want to completely control the communications and all the data coming back from it as a as a as a, a, a client or end user, you kind of put up one antenna and you're ready to go. So I, I can understand why you and especially industrial clients would want to use. Uh, a standard like LoRaWAN because that allows them to fully control the communications there. Um, so I got I get an idea of what drove the choice. How has it worked out in practice so far? So yeah, you brought up a really really great point that I forgot to touch on, which is that LoRaWAN can be deployed you know publicly, actually publicly, semi-publicly, or privately, and and we like we're trying to leverage all of the above. And I think eventually the public LoRaWAN coverage will be as strong as your. 4G coverage, for example, but it's not quite there yet. So we can't just 
um, rely on the publicly available coverage. That's really, at least in the United States, still very limited to the most populated cities and metropolitan areas. And that's you know slowly spreading out um, organically from there. This is huge, right? And it took cellular companies 20 years to, to uh, to cover the entire United States. You know, what Western Europe is, has a lot better uh, LoRaWAN coverage. Some of Asia has better LoRaWAN coverage. But uh, unfortunately, if for a LoRaWAN company, you know, we're in the we're in the United States, and, and the public coverage isn't that great yet. So yes, uh, we deploy on-demand coverage, which means that we will actually install a gateway, which is our you know, the LoRaWAN version of our of our reader or router. Um, wherever we need real-time connectivity. And so uh, what we're doing is lighting up different touch points in the cold chain. So a touch point could be a, a processing, of, you know, a food process, processing facility, a cold storage facility, could even be a truck or a ship, a distribution center, a grocery store, a pharmacy, whatever it may be. These are all what we call touch points. And we will actually put gateways at each of those touch points to ensure connectivity. And it's actually because of the range of LoRaWAN, uh, it, we only require one gateway per touch point, and it really doesn't matter how big the touchpoint is. I mean, the, the range of LoRaWAN is, is astounding. I mean, our, our nanotag can talk to a gateway up to 10 miles away. So, I mean, there's nothing else in the world like it. And that's what makes what would be, you know, what sounds like a very unfeasible proposition, right? Very feasible. No one wants to have to install 15 gateways at a single touch point. No one wants to have to maintain all those and and wiggle them around in the right direction to, to make sure that they work. And with LoRaWAN, it's really, really simple. I mean, we don't even need to be on site to do the installs. You literally just, we just mail a gateway to the customer. The gateway is the size of a wireless router and they plug it into a wall and that's it. And it's instant connectivity. Uh, we call that, you know, lighting up. Uh, so they instantly light up their their site, and uh, and now nanotags can talk to uh, that gateway, and the and the solution will work. I, I like your uh, terminology there of uh, on-demand gateways. That's a great way to refer to it. L let's talk about a little bit about your key installations. And yes, we covered a lot of this in the webinar yesterday, and I think you did a great job. But for the listening audience, let's talk about some of the the key uh, customer use cases that you guys have seen and some of the results. Sure. So before I get too far down this uh, at any tangent, our two main use cases are cold chain monitoring, which is effectively just temperature monitoring throughout the cold chain, and then static asset monitoring, which is just temperature monitoring of static assets. And an asset could be anything from a refrigerator to a 50 million cubic foot cold storage facility um, to a piece of equipment. And, and everything in between. Um, so, and we've had great tra early traction it, it, across both applications, but let me focus on our cold chain application first. And, and we actually co-developed this or worked very hand in hand with one of the largest uh, players in the cold storage industry called the United States Cold Storage. And they helped us develop our value proposition and actually our product um, for the cold chain industry. And uh, so obviously they're our first big customer. They're also our first big, big partner. And uh, they helped 
us learn about all the different problems that they were facing in the industry and why they were so interested in our technology and what they thought it could do for this industry. And, and you know, we, we actually worked with them over the course of a few years to, to learn everything that we could about the industry, especially all of the problems and, and you know, how a, a technology like NanoThings using a, 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 a wireless protocol like LoRaWAN could potentially solve some of these problems. And I'll, just to go, uh, you know, into uh, just a few of the problems that they were facing, um, it was that it's still, and don't get me wrong, I, I love this industry because it is the wild west, but it is truly still the wild, wild west. I mean, it's it's temperature monitoring and quality monitoring seem like such simple concepts, but in practice, it's so hard to do. I mean, everyone's doing it differently. Um, most temperature monitoring devices used today are unconnected. They're data loggers or temperature probes, and they require an enormous amount of manual labor um, reliance on human beings to get it right, which obviously doesn't happen all the time. Most data is still collected via pen and paper. Interparty data sharing doesn't really exist at all. And that's just a few of the challenges, right? So you can imagine, you know, how hard it is to, to manage a cold chain or a part of the cold chain when no one else in the chain is sharing data with you. Um, you know, how are you supposed to know that the, that the product that you took in um, hasn't already been spoiled? And how are you supposed to know that the product that you delivered didn't didn't get spoiled? Or, or the reason that it got rejected was that it in fact did get spoiled because no one's sharing the data back with you. And so those were some of the issues that U.S. Cold was, was facing when they came to us and said, listen, we really need a, a temperature monitoring solution that's completely automated, that's going to guarantee that we get the data uh, across our entire cold chain because the way it's happening right now is really, really unacceptable. So, you know, we started putting, you know, putting connectivity, which means actually, you know, physically installing gateways at all of their different cold storage facilities. And uh, we're now in the process of rolling out um, co connectivity or gateways um, at some of their biggest customers. Uh, I can reference some of them, but obviously I can't reference a lot because we're under NDA, but one of our other big reference customers is a company called Trident Seafoods, which is actually the largest seafood company in North America. And we're tracking from all of their processing plants around the United States, we're tracking every single load that comes into a U.S. cold storage facility and passes through down to a, a grocery store. Everybody in the now, has access to the same data. You know, we're, we're the the grocery stores can can are getting traceability all the way back up to the processing plant. The processing plant is getting traceability all the way down to the grocery store, and this has never been done before. So it's 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 a pretty cool time for us. It, it, it is. You know, in the uh, in the webinar yesterday, one of the key topics, of course, is you know COVID nineteen. We've referred to this as the the digital accelerator, and especially relevant to supply chain technology. So, thinking about your focus on contactless, you know, cold chain, as you as you mentioned, seems like you're truly in the right place at the right time. What are some of the changes you've seen in client requirements since the start of the pandemic? And you know, what do you think this, I guess, new normal will look like in terms of long-term implications for supply chain? Well, certainly there's a renewed focus and emphasis on traceability and quality control. And you know, we saw during the, the height of COVID-19 that the, the supply chain completely broke. And I think what 
no one really knows and understands unless you're in the industry is that the supply chain was really never a working chain to begin with. I mean, it, it's been held together with with sticks and tape for for the you know since since I've known the industry at least. I mean, for for decades, right? Um, and so it only took something as 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 slight as a run on toilet paper to break the entire chain, and that just shows you. Um, how much new technologies, you know, digitalization is needed in this industry that still, you know, very much runs on people and pen and paper um, and, you know, f physical filing cabinets. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy, right? Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, there's a serious focus now on digitalization, you know, removing the humans out of as much unnecessary process as possible, you know, making sure that that data is then shared across all the parties that need that data to do their job. And so we are now seeing a major uh, focus on this. And that obviously plays perfectly into um, into you know, nano things and, and the value proposition that we provide, you know, and other startups in the space as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, you're really in the right place at the right time. Speaking of other startups, as you know, digital industry investors, we always like to know which startups you know uh, people see as the ones to watch. Which ones, yeah, in particular, which sectors do you watch for in terms of interesting young companies? Well, not to be biased, but Laura Wan's startups are, I think, are, uh, are 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 showing incredible potential, and I think that that's a, a an area to watch because it still hasn't popped yet, but there's so much buzz around it. And if you talk to anyone that's in the Laura Wang community, they'll all tell you the same thing that there is no better wireless technology for IoT or machine to machine communication than Laura Wang. And I can go, we can have a whole podcast on, on why that's the case, but it, I truly believe that. And, and so it's just, it's still so early, right? Laura Wan has only been around for a couple of years, and you, and and already you see so much um, activity around it, and such a huge and growing, fast-growing ecosystem that it's only just a matter of time before I believe that Laura Wan and the startups that are supporting it um, will start really, you know, taking over the world. It's uh, It's been a key thematic for our fund too, so I think we couldn't agree more. I think what makes it interesting as well compared to other um, communications protocols is that it is not dominated by large industry players in the sense it's an alliance of companies that have really put it together backed by Semtech. And uh, and so it's investable, right? Uh, again, you you can you. It's a very flexible deployment model, which means even small companies can afford to kind of uh, roll their own networks if they want to, or or deploy on larger ones. So. It is, in essence, kind of the the, the almost crowdsourced or uh, near a crowdsourced style ethos, which we like overall from all of our investments. So in closing, can you pro provide any recommendations of books and or resources that inspire you? Uh, uh, I in in terms of in terms of books, I use reading books as as stress relief uh, and to help me get to sleep at night. So most of the books, I, I read I would be embarrassed to uh, publicly state um, so I'm not going to do so <laughs> but it's uh, you know it's it's 
I'm not reading anything too uh, scientific at, at night. Let's let's put it that way. In terms of resources um, that inspire me, I mean, of course, uh, I'm you know I'm a huge fan of 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 you know digital digital media, digital news. You know, that's how I'm keeping track of what's going out on in the world. So I spend a lot of time, you know, obviously I'm running a digital startup, um, you know, in, in the digital world um, and just making sure that I'm um, always staying up to date on what's going on out there, especially as it pertains to our industry and similar technologies, et cetera. Very good. Well, Tim, thank you for taking the time to join us for this insightful interview. Yeah, thank you very much, Ken. It was fun. Yeah, as well. And and again, long overdue. So this has been Tim Williams, co-founder and CEO of NanoThings, and uh, I'd say chief of contactless cold chain. So good all four C's there for you. <laughs> Thank you it. for listening. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast Series. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.